0: Hello, lover, this is Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. Sui suike, coming up. If you are delivering high-level healthcare, there is always going to be a lot of equipment involved. New Zealand Defence and Health personnel test emergency response capability. Also, Francesca Semoso from Bougainville wins a seat in PNG's parliament. And later on... And I really want to get them out of their comfort zone, help them challenge
1: the world to be successful and to be out there more.
0: Nauru crowns its new beauty pageant winner. As Vanuatu takes stock of the damage left by its third cyclone this year, and in the wake of Cyclone Gabriel in Aotearoa, the New Zealand Medical Assistance Team and the New Zealand Defence Force are combining for the first time to test their response to a catastrophic event in New Zealand. About 50 personnel from both organisations are taking part in exercise kotahitanga, currently being held at Trincomalee Military Camp in Upper Hutt and is ending this week. The exercise doubles as a World Health Organisation assessment that the teams are operating to international standards and Pacific Nations observers from Samoa, Fiji and also Australia are taking part. Kuroy Hawkins reports.
2: The capital has been doing its bit this week to properly simulate wet and windy conditions for the men and women setting up this deployable health facility in Upper Hutt. But they're more than up to the challenge and the NZDF commander of the Joint Support Group, Colonel Anthony Blythen, says it's a welcome opportunity to test themselves. So
3: it's been all about trying to learn what each other's capabilities are and how those capabilities may have opportunities to work together but also to understand where they may not be compatible uh, to work together as well. So we don't have a misconception about what people have or don't have.
2: The NZDF and the Ministry of Health have been working independently up to this point to develop their operational preparedness for disasters. The Director-General of Health, Diana Safati, says seeing the combined response capability inspires confidence.
0: It's amazing to see it all out at the same time. But at the same time, if you, if you are delivering high-level health care, there is always going to be a lot of equipment involved. Yeah, it gives me a lot of peace of mind to know that there are people that are prepared and trained to be able to respond if we do have a catastrophic event in New Zealand.
2: The impressive full setup of the deployable health facility is designed for the worst type of catastrophic event. Thankfully, this has so far not been needed. However, mobile elements of the setup and the personnel involved are regularly engaged across the country and the wider Pacific region for disasters. The New Zealand Medical Assistant Team's Dr. Alan Goody is just back from conducting training in the islands and says they're on standby now to assist Vanuatu in its response to Cyclone Lola if required.
3: This international effort to have is accredited teams is moving right across the Pacific and there's two advantages to that. One is that the best response is always a local response uh, and the second is that they also can understand how to receive
2: other medical teams and work together. When the joint response exercise concludes on the 2nd of November, the New Zealand Medical Assistance Team also aims to have renewed its World Health Organization certification, which qualifies them to be deployed anywhere in the world.
0: Francesca Sim also has been a politician for a long time. In 2005, she was a member of the first autonomous government elected in Bougainville, winning one of the three seats in that parliament reserved for women. She returned in 2015, again in a reserved seat. Now she's in the Papua New Guinea National Parliament, having won the North Bougainville Open seat in a by-election following the death of William Nakin during the national poll last year. Miss Semoso is an ardent supporter of Bougainville's push for independence, and she told Don Wiseman that will be her key focus in the PNG Parliament.
4: It never really crossed my mind that I would actually be running for any national election. But as time went by, and as we got closer to the referendum, we took that vote in, in 2019, And then it started dawning on me that we would actually need a voice in the national parliament of Papua New Guinea if we were to vote for independence for for, for Bougainville. But never did it ever cross my mind that I would be running for the national election. I thought the, the the stakes were too high for me at that time.
5: The prime minister has been full of praise for you. Where do you think he stands on your enthusiasm for focusing on the independence issue?
4: Well, well, I guess the prime minister knows that I've been an advocate for the people of Bougainville's vision for the last 20 years. And, you know, I mean, you read me. It's, it's like what you see is what you get for Francis customers. So what you see is what you get. And most importantly, you know, he'd be saying what he's saying because he knows my capability and he knows that I have not shied away from talking about my people's wish for independence. And, and it's about leadership. It's about honesty. I knew that a lot of people would say, "Okay, are we really serious about independence for Bougainville? How serious does it get? You know, the seriousness of this issue was seen through the ballot box of, you know, 97.7. Now, we need a leader. We need leadership that will actually be able to start massaging the issue of when, what day, what week, what month and what year. So we've been given the time frame that has been agreed to by both governments is between 2025 and 2027. So what time between those two years would we be able to be given what we voted for? So the prime minister, who's my party leader at the moment, knows exactly what I've been advocating. He knows that I advocate for independence for my people of Bougainville.
5: The critical thing here is going to be convincing many dozens of other MPs because it does seem, it's difficult to to read, I suppose, at this point, but there does seem to be a significant amount of opposition to Bougainville independence within that parliament. So there's got to be a lot of campaigning, presumably, by the likes of you and your colleagues from Bougainville in that parliament, would you say? Yeah,
4: well, Don, the most important thing is for myself, and my three other MPs to actually, you know, we got to start dialoguing. We need to make the 115 non fifteen non-Bougainvilleans in that parliament, we need to start sensitizing them about where we've been to where we are and and to where we are going. So nothing won't be understood until I and until my other three MPs start talking about uh, the issues of Bougainville. You know, there were some MPs that that would not have heard about where we've been, to where we are, and to where we are going. So the responsibility of making that information known to our colleagues in the national parliament, actually it it, it lies with us, it lies with the four of us. If, If the MPs from Bougainville are going to shy away, from talking about what our wishes are, then no one's going to talk about it. So I know exactly that I'm, I'm going to be knocking on brick here. That's fine. I totally understand that. But, you know, we need to go there knowing that we represent our people. And I'm going to be repeating myself on the floor of parliament until I'm understood. So until I start talking about it, until I start educating the PNG parliamentarians about what we lost, where we've been, and why we are where we are today, why we voted 97.7. They need to understand why we voted 97.7.
5: Okay, one other question I need to put to you. You came into Parliament in Bougainville in a reserved seat for women. How important were those reserved seats do you think in your further political development and growth?
4: Well, Don you know that I'm actually uh, an advocate for getting more women into parliament. And the reserve seats um, for Bougainville is the issue. It is my issue. It's my, it's my passion. And we are now starting to see what we've done as a first-time parliamentarian from 2005 to 2010. And then I came back again in, in, in 2015 to 2020. I've always advocated getting women into parliament whether it's through party quarters that is being practiced in Fiji or other temporary special measures they're called the reserve seat in bougainville is actually another tsm and i've always looked at the reserve seat in bougainville as a launching pad for aspiring women politicians now you know where i've been to where i am going i've been on reserve seats twice
0: a Pacific political expert says any welcoming of an intervention of the Republic of the Fiji Military Forces Commander exercising his mandate to safeguard the well-being of the Fiji people is a cause for concern. This is after Fiji's Prime Minister Sitiveni Rambuka walked back on a controversial cabinet reshuffle earlier in October after announcing it. Ramboka backtracked on his move to appoint his Minister for lands, Filimoni Vosarongo, as Attorney-General after past disciplinary proceedings disqualified him from assuming the role. The decision had caused a public uproar and prompted the country's military commander, Ro Chone Kaloniwai, to send a letter to government expressing his concerns. But Kaloniwai's intervention has also stirred public debate about the military's involvement in government affairs. Whinau Whanua spoke with Victoria University Professor John Frankel, who says legitimising military intervention is a slippery slope.
6: What's your opinion on this backlash against the Attorney-General? We just heard that Rambuka is now halting that appointment.
3: He's holding back the appointment, yes. I mean, that appointment's not going to happen. They've reversed that judgement. And there are some people saying this is a constitutional crisis or that... Um, uh, you know, it's a, a sign of the regime collapsing and this kind of thing. I, I think this is that's nonsense. Uh, uh, y- yes, there have been some, there's been some mishandling of this reshuffle or rescuffle, you might call it. Uh, uh, the reshuffle, uh, both on the, uh, b- b- both into the attorney general's position and also the ministry of education. Both of these uh, reshuffles have been reversed, which is a shame, really, because because. Uh, in the past, uh, pre-2006 coup governments have often been reluctant to make reshuffles where reshuffles are necessary. And probably in both portfolios, those reshuffles are necessary. It's just that they weren't handled very well. Um, they should have checked out, the, um, the Prime Minister and uh, his advisers should have checked out the uh, legality of the appointment of uh, Vidyami Vossarola beforehand. And clearly there should have been more consultation with Sadelpa, uh, an important... Coalition partner, um, uh, at least on this issue. There's certainly been consultation on a lot of other issues. But, but, but for those who say that this is a sign of the collapse of the government, I think that's ridiculous. It's a, the, the, on the contrary, the government has realized that there's an error, it's responded to the Fiji Law Society's criticism, and it's now making steps to make sure that it's, it keeps within the law.
6: But do you think the criticism that this is, that there's this order? Auto- Within Rambuka's government, do you think that's a valid criticism?
3: Well, I think I think the, 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 the disorder. What do you call it? Disorder or do you call it disagreement? Several di- disagreement disagreements uh, about various things, and I think that's a, actually a sign of the normalization of the government because in, under the pre. 2022 election government, there could be no disagreement because the minute you had any disagreement, you, you were fired. Basically, it was all a kind of two two-person show. Uh, and, and I think it's important to put what's happening into context in the aftermath of long periods of military rule and then um, semi-authoritarian rule, as we've had since 2014. Um, it's often the case that. Um, uh, more democratic governments are criticized for being incompetent or for poor decision making and this kind of thing by those who really want to go back to a more authoritarian style of government you see that in pakistan you see that in parts of west africa as well a lot of troublemakers trying to stir up forces within the military to take over the government, uh, put forward these kind of things. And there are these clandestine intel reports that keep coming out, with, by, written by people who won't put their names to them, all trying to stir up trouble. And it, there's no doubt that there are some mistakes being made on both appointments and indeed uh, other matters as well. But the, uh, straight, the, the sign of a a more democratic government, is that the government listens to the criticisms of the Fiji Law Society and does things to correct them. Uh, I mean, the other side of the story is not just the Attorney General's appointment, but also the Education Ministry, um, Fijian Affairs Ministry, reshuffle. And that was much more an attempt to clearly keep the coalition together because of certain tensions that exist between SODELPA, the three-seat party in the uh, in, in the broader coalition, of course, that's very important that, uh, to avoid uh, a breakup of that coalition. Otherwise, we would be back to a Fiji first government.
6: Do you think that Rambuka, since coming into power, has made Fiji more democratic?
3: Oh, for, well, certainly I do. Yes, absolutely. it has been consultation. There's been responsiveness to public opinion. There's a, they've got rid of the media industry Deve- development decree, which was a draconian form of press censorship. There's all sorts of things they've done that, that have made Fiji more democratic. But standing in the shadows here under section 131 of the constitution is the uh, Republic of Fiji military forces having the right to intervene in Fiji politics in order to safeguard the well-being of the Fijian people. And I worry about the fact that even during this debacle about the reshuffle or the rescuffle, the, the uh, military, into the invention by the commander has been sort of welcomed by uh, the Home Affairs Ministry and, and indeed by the minister and by the Prime Minister. Now, okay, maybe in this particular case, since the commander is echoing the view of the Fiji Law Society, that's, uh, uh he's talking sensibly. But one has to be careful about legitimising the right of the military. To intervene in such circumstances, because we've seen it three times in the past, that can be a very dangerous uh, road to go down. And uh, Fiji would be better off to move away from that uh, section 131 of the constitution, if the constitution could ever be changed.
6: Do you think that threat still exists, uh, the threat of a coup?
3: Oh, yes. I I think as long as you've got that, coups are often made not Not when there are constitutions that say they can be made. They're often made just as straight, unlawful acts. But in Fiji's situation, we've got a double bind. One, a military that's been committed, that that has taken it upon itself to intervene in the political process on numerous occasions in the past. And two, a constitutional provision that actually authorizes that. Um, But on both grounds, that's, I think, a central dilemma for Fiji in the years to come.
0: A 19-year-old woman, Rosita Rokobuli, was last week crowned Miss Nauru. Rokobuli says she wants to inspire her fellow youth and use her title to highlight national and regional challenges. Fina Fonua spoke with Miss Nauru.
6: Could you describe your experience as Miss Nauru so far? What are your responsibilities?
1: My main responsibilities are to be a role model for the youth, be an ambassador for the youth, and just to reach out to the communities, bring in any concerns and be their voice as general in front of the government and the world, just to bring voice to the faces that haven't been heard in a while. In, here in Nauru, there's a lot of concerns with the youth, but in the past, Miss Nauru has not really utilised the platform, and I feel with our MPIP, this is the best chance for us to utilise the platform in order to advocate for youth, unity and community.
6: And... What are some of those, um, those challenges that you mentioned?
1: Well, in general, we are still um, fighting against the, the stereotypes where the youth are young, naive, and although there are some backings to those claims, I feel as though it's because we're not given the chance and, and also because we're not taking up that chance. And so I want to stand up and advocate the youth to actually stand up and be the voice of the future. The, the youth in Nauru, they're very, they're very introvert, is a way to say it. They like to stick to themselves, to their friend groups, their communities. And I really want to get them out of their comfort zone, um, help them challenge the world to be successful and to be out there more, more often.
6: If you enter international pageants such as Miss Pacific, what kind of issues would you like to highlight?
1: With my pageant as well. Climate has like saving the environment was a theme for Miss pageant, and, and I want to continue that theme wherever I go because I feel like that's the most crucial in the Pacific, and I want to highlight how it's really we've gone past the um, every person step matters like everyone taking part matters because really if the one same person does save the environment on their own for so long, even they will lose hope, even they will start to fade away in their beliefs in saving the environment. So I feel like it's more moving on now to a sense of community. Community as a whole, like each country, even the small districts, the villages and towns just helping each other out. And then on the international level where each country helps each other out on the, on our saving the environment because we are having islands in the Pacific that are already facing the consequences of climate change with the rising of sea level. Nauru, fortunately enough, is not having much extreme changes, but we are facing weather patterns where there's heat waves, there are more regular rainfall, and although it's good for the greenery, it's really causing a lot of other issues where we're not prepared for that much rainfall or that much heat waves. So it's more of a sense of community that I will really have to highlight as well. And with the upcoming MPIP, I just want to say, although it's a competition, I would really love to meet the girls and have that new sense of community as well with the, the broader Pacific sisters.
6: What's it like growing up on Nauru? It's a small island compared to the, the rest of the Pacific. Uh, most of the island is not arable. The, the opportunities are limited. Sorry for bringing up these negatives. but
1: Oh, no, that's fine. It's good that we address the negatives because... There will be negatives in life. We just have to stick to the positives, but we can. We should never disregard the negatives. So I guess growing up in Nauru, I won't claim that I was like raised fully in Nauru. I did have international education, so I spent six years studying in Fiji in my younger primary level and then three years in Australia for high school. And right after graduating high school, then I got into the pageant. Um, but I remember growing up in Nauru, I guess I had the good life because when I was growing up in the rural there was no there was less technology, a lot of community um involvement, and that's why I want to bring those back with the culture with everything like the kids had fun um learning about their cultures, we had a lot of family quality times, but now with technology, I guess it's a different generation, and I think the whole world is facing that growing up in the rural, yes with agriculture, like I said. Back when I was growing up, we had our own farm, kitchen gardens. We had pigs, we had chickens, but it was really just on our own. We didn't have like big community projects. We had a whole field of community kitchen gardens and that agriculture, but we're fortunate enough that our government provides us. Our government are working with Taiwan to provide us with free seedlings, compost, and resources that we need to do gardens. It's just the people taking the initiative to do that are not really... They're not really taking the initiative to be involved and to get the help that they need and with the climate changing even worse rapidly nowadays i feel like that we should really utilize the government's assistance but we just don't see a lot of people doing that
0: that's our show for today to listen back head over to com slash programs we're also on apple spotify and iheart radio podcast from myself and the rnz pacific team to wha soifua